in the Acts of the Apostles, the gospel is generally preached from the text of the Old Testament. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading the story of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 53. Philip explains that text such that it lands on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how you do evangelism. You don't unhitch from the Old Testament. You embed yourself in the Old Testament because the Old Testament tells us the truth about God, that he is holy, 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 and yet willing to be merciful. The Old Testament tells us the truth about us, that we are fallen, confused, deceived, and desperately astray. And it is these two truths that we meet in the Old Testament that prepare us to embrace the truth of how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, no, I don't think it's time to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I think it's time to become fluent in the Old Testament so that we can lead people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, just like Philip does in this story. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Old Testament tells us the truth about God, about us, and about how God intends to save us through the person and work of the Messiah. That's what we see in this story, and that's what we've been experiencing again and again and again in the history of the church. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 8. You will remember, no doubt, that in Acts 7, Stephen was arrested and charged with speaking against Moses and the temple. He gave a spirited response, preaching from the whole scope of Old Testament history and contending that the people of Israel have always rejected those sent by God to deliver them and have always inclined towards idolatry and superstition, particularly where it comes to the temple. The leaders of the Jewish people did not respond favorably to his accusations, as you can well imagine. Chapter 7 ends with these words. The text says, They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. Let's just pause quickly there. As Luke introduces to us here, the person who will become, humanly speaking, the most important character in the second half of the Acts of the Apostles. As modern and particularly Western readers, we sometimes get confused a little bit with how names are used in the New Testament. Most of the people in the New Testament have multiple names. We think of Matthew, also called Levi, Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, Thaddeus, also called Judas, not Iscariot, son of James. It can be hard to keep track of all these names. Saul is more commonly called Paul. As a Jew and as a Roman citizen, he would actually have had four different names. 
All Roman citizens had three names, as, for example, Gaius Julius Caesar. The first two names would have been common to all members of the family. In Caesar's case, all members of his family would have had the names Gaius and Julius. The third name, called in Latin the cognomen, or the personal name, was Caesar, or in Paul's case, Paulus. We actually don't know Paul's family name. Luke, who was Greek, doesn't bother to tell us. As a Jew, Paul would have also had a Jewish name given to him on the day of his circumcision. That name was Saul, in honor of the fact that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, of course, being the most famous member of the tribe of Benjamin. So, to put all of that together, at home with his mom and dad, Paul would have been called Saul. That name was probably chosen because it rhymed with his official official personal name, Paul. So, Saulus Paulus, right? Easy to remember. When Paul interacted with Greek or Latin-speaking friends and associates, he would have been called Paul. So it is not the case that when Saul the terrorist became a Christian, his name was changed to Paul. You sometimes hear that, but I think that's a confusion with the story of Simon Peter, who was given an additional name by Jesus because of the role that he was to play in the future of the church. But Jesus never changed Paul's name. Paul was the name he was given at birth by his parents who were Roman citizens. Even after Paul was converted and was preaching the gospel alongside Barnabas, he is still called Saul. As, for example, in Acts 13, where we are told that the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It isn't really clear, actually, why Luke switches from Saul to Paul but it may have had something to do with the fact that Paul was increasingly moving outside of the boundaries of the Jewish community and deeper and deeper into Gentile territory. Either way, at this point in the story, back in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul Paul is clearly a leader among the Jewish community that was opposing the spread of the gospel. It seems likely even that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. David G. Peterson says here, the fact that the witnesses laid their clothes at Saul's feet suggests that he was already the acknowledged leader in the opposition of the early church, closed quote. All right, let's jump back into the text. Verse one goes on to say, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And that's a very interesting comment, isn't it? Now, I don't think that we're to understand the presence of the, of the apostles in Jerusalem as any sort of sign that they were unwilling or unable or otherwise disobedient to the Great Commission. Jesus had told them to go into all the world and make disciples and to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world. And so it does seem odd that they're still in Jerusalem eight chapters later. But it may be that they intended to build up strength in Jerusalem before launching out. We, we don't know. But what we see here is that this persecution, which would have been received as a real felt 
trauma by the early church was nevertheless turned to good effect. As the Christians were driven out, the gospel began to spread. Now, I don't think that means that we should desire persecution, but I think it should remind us that it is very much in the character of God to turn even the worst efforts of the devil towards the blessing and benefit of the church. Thanks be to God. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's notice here that any effort to rigidly confine all miracles and supernatural phenomenon to the college of the apostles will struggle with the actual words of the text. Certainly, the miracles and signs and wonders are disproportionately associated with the apostles, but equally certain is the fact that they are not exclusively associated with the apostles. Both Stephen and Philip are said to do many signs and wonders. Therefore, I think we need to be careful not to be more restrictive than the Bible itself. Verse 9 goes on to say, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great wonders performed, he was amazed. We should probably notice two things here. Let's notice first a pattern that we're going to see repeated time and again in the Acts of the Apostles. It says that people believed the good news that was preached to them and then were baptized, both men and women. It says that about the Samaritans in general, and then it says that about Simon in particular. Here, believe and be baptized. That's the pattern in the book of Acts. And that pattern is very significant to many expressions of Christianity, including my own, down to this very day. Let's also notice that not everyone who believes and is baptized truly understands what they're doing. Simon is being portrayed here as a false or at least a very questionable believer. He was attracted to the signs more than the Savior himself. This is a caution, and, and, and this caution towards sign seekers is a carryover from the Gospels themselves. Jesus was very cautious about people who were attracted to signs. Now, let's be very clear. Signs aren't bad. Not in any sense are they bad. But they can attract people who then come and get involved for the wrong reasons. So here. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
This is a very unusual story. In fact, several commentators refer to this as the most unusual verse and paragraph in the New Testament. Everywhere else in the Bible, we would be led to expect that people would receive the Holy Spirit at the very moment of conversion. In, in fact, I think it would be fair to say that receiving the Holy Spirit is inseparable from the definition of what it is to be saved. The Holy Spirit is the climactic gift and grace that is, in fact, our salvation. So, for example, Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Ephesians were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believed. And that certainly seems to be the pattern in the New Testament. And that's what Peter told us to expect all the way back in Acts 2.38. The people there heard the gospel. They asked how they should respond. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what in the world is going on here? Why didn't the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit when they believed the gospel and were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ? John Stott explains this strange situation very well when he says, The most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit is that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed not only outside Jerusalem, but inside Samaria. This is clearly the importance of the occasion in Luke's unfolding story, since the Samaritans were a kind of halfway house between Jews and Gentiles, closed quote. I think that is it exactly. I think that God wanted the apostles to see that the gospel was being embraced by the Samaritans. This is God gently moving the leaders of the Christian church out of their native racism and out of their inherited hostility in order to prepare them for the mission that they had been given. They needed to overcome these prejudices if they were going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so God is saying to them, come and see. If the Holy Spirit accepts these people, then why can't you? In fact, every time the gospel crosses an ethnic or cultural barrier in the Acts of the Apostles, it is accompanied by some sort of extraordinary supernatural display. I think we are supposed to be impressed by that. Christianity is, by definition and Holy Spirit design, a multi-ethnic and multicultural enterprise. Thanks be to God. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. <laughs> Once again, poor Simon has missed the point. He has no idea what is going on here. He thinks this is a story about mechanics rather than multiculturalism. So he offers to pay the apostles that they will teach him how to distribute the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter says to him, basically, to hell with you and your money. 
It's not about mechanics and it's not about money. It's about receiving the sovereign grace of God. Verse 25 says, Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Obviously, the Lord has been successful in his gentle work. The apostles are now on board with the mission to Samaria and presumably the mission to the Gentile world beyond, though not without a few bumps left in the road. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because this story raises the question as to whether there is some kind of second blessing sort of thing that believers should aspire to. As you said in the program audio, the Samaritans didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they first believed. Rather, there was a delay until the apostles could come down from Jerusalem. It was only when the apostles laid their hands on them that they received the Holy Spirit. So is this passage speaking about a sort of second blessing experience? Is is there normally a delay between believing the gospel and receiving the Spirit, or is there something else entirely going on here? Yeah, I definitely don't think the passage is presenting any kind of second blessing experience. Rather, I think what's happening here is that the Lord is being very gentle with the apostles. For all their brilliance, for all their inside knowledge, for all their special inspiration, these are still Jewish men. They're still products of their upbringing, and that upbringing included a natural suspicion towards Samaritans. The Samaritans were religious half-breeds. They're cultists, basically, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Half of what they believed came from the Bible, and half came from somewhere else. So these Jewish men were not inclined to believe that Samaritans could be fully and properly converted, but they were. And so the Holy Spirit is being gentle and patient here. He orchestrates an unusual experience for an unusual reason. He wants the apostles to see this firsthand. He wants the Holy Spirit to flow into these people through the laying on of their hands so that there could be absolutely no doubt. Because in the Bible, if you have the Spirit, then you are saved. Argument over. And that's what's going on here. Okay, that makes sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Oh, if I had time here, I would want to say a word about spiritual guidance. Yes, the Bible is the word of God a thousand times, yes. And yes, every spirit ought to be tested. And no, we do not treat our dreams and promptings as authoritative. But there is such a thing as spiritual guidance. The Lord sometimes directs us by his Holy Spirit to to look over there or to go over here or to speak with such and such a person. There is such a thing as a divine appointment. Martin Luther believed in that. John Bunyan believed in that. And I believe in that too. How could you not if you take the Bible seriously? There was no text that Philip could have looked up that would have told him to take the road to Gaza. God did that, right? God sent an angel and gave him very specific guidance. I'd love to say more about that, but we are running out of time. Verse 27 goes on to say, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. This 
just pause here. This, so he was obviously a, a, a Jewish proselyte of some type, okay? He had come to Jerusalem to worship, verse 28, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, there is a lot we could say here, but for the sake of time, we'll have to content ourselves with these two observations. Observation number one, notice again the pattern that we have mentioned. The Ethiopian eunuch heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and was baptized. I do think Luke means for us to take note of that repeated pattern. Secondly, there is a model being presented here for evangelism. In the Acts of the Apostles, the gospel is generally preached from the text of the Old Testament. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading the story of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 53. Philip explains that text such that it lands on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how you do evangelism. You don't unhitch from the Old Testament. You embed yourself in the Old Testament because the Old Testament tells us the truth about God, that he is holy, 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 and yet willing to be merciful. The Old Testament tells us the truth about us, that we are fallen, confused, deceived, and desperately astray. And it is these two truths that we meet in the Old Testament that prepare us to embrace the truth of how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, no, I don't think it's time to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I think it's time to become fluent in the Old Testament so that we can lead people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, just like Philip does in this story. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, let me go back to something you said at the end of the program audio. You said that this story provides a bit of a template or a pattern for how we should do evangelism. I wonder if you could take a few minutes and flesh that out for us, because I know a lot of people struggle with how to do evangelism. We want to do it, but we're not sure what it should look like. I mean, obviously, if we come across a guy reading Isaiah 53 out loud in a chariot, we can jump right onto that. But apart from that very rare occurrence... 
what is this passage suggesting that we do? Well, I think the basic idea is that we can just read the Bible with people. I was preaching at a church in Hamilton a couple of weeks ago, and a guy came up to me after the service and said that he had been using the End of the Word podcast to share the gospel with a friend, a friend who had been asking him questions about faith. So he said to the friend, why don't you listen to a couple episodes of this podcast? He set him up with End of the Word on his phone, and then we'll talk about it at the end of the week. So he's been using Into the Word as a platform for those discussions? Yeah, they each listen to four or five chapters, however many they can get in on their commute over the course of the week. And then they text each other using an app called Telegram. Uh, he showed it to me. He's a younger guy. I, I couldn't make hide nor tail of it, but <laughs> it looked pretty fancy. Right. And, and then they ask questions using that app. They make comments. And then on the basis of that, they meet at the end of the week to discuss. And it's just that simple, right? Listen to a couple of chapters and then get together and talk about it. Yeah, it can be. Another great resource out there would be the book One-to-One -One Bible Reading by David Helm. Same basic idea. You read the Bible together with a friend, and then you have a conversation about it. That's basically what Philip does here with the Ethiopian eunuch. All right, and if I wanted to do that, what book of the Bible would you recommend that I start with? I'd probably recommend that they start with either Matthew or John's Gospel. They both tell the story of Jesus, and they both give you tons of opportunities to talk about who God is, who we are, and how God has saved us through the person and work of Christ. We've got Into the Word series on both of those books, so you could do the same thing as my friend is doing in Hamilton. Just agree to read a couple of chapters a week, uh, listen to uh, the, the, those texts read and explained. You can text back and forth, whether you use uh, the Telegram app or just regular texting. You can provide encouragement, however you want to do that, and then meet at the end of the week to discuss. And of course, pray like crazy for the Holy Spirit to do a work of illumination and regeneration in your friend's heart. Mm, yeah, amen to that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.